Trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior changes everything. We are born in Adam. Our very identity rooted in the head of the race and in his sin. But when we trust Christ as our Savior, we become a new humanity in vital union with Christ. Once a child of sin, now a child of God. Once a citizen of man's kingdom, we become heirs of God's kingdom. Once the proud possessors of darkened hearts, we become humble recipients of a new heart enlightened by grace. The New Testament repeatedly stresses this. God continues to bring us before this truth that we would recognize this truth and embrace it. We are new people with a new identity, a new heart, and citizens of a new kingdom. Once the proud possessors of a darkened heart, we now have light in the Lord. And the New Testament not only proclaims this truth, it also repeatedly stresses that we should act as if it were true. We should act out this truth. We should display by the way that we think and act and by what we desire that God indeed is our Father. One of the most arresting evidences that we have become His children is as traumatizing as it is differentiating in this world. Few of Jesus' commands to His followers more terrify us and more distinguish us from this world than what we find before us at the end of Matthew chapter 5. So we make our way there, and as we've come to this place in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we remember that Jesus teaches some things in this sermon that our world at least believes that they cheer. They are supportive of some of the ideas that we find here. The passage before us today is not one of those passages, not one of those statements. Listen to this familiar command as if for the first time. Hear it. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. There is nothing in our Adamic DNA that wants anything to do with that command. It's worse than Brussels sprouts. Apologies to the three of you. <laughs> this is tough. I don't like these words, honestly. In my flesh, I don't like them. I, they seem irrational. I don't want to think about the implications. When Jesus says this, love your enemies, I want to change the subject. But if God is our Father, if we hope to follow Jesus Christ in His command, if we hope to walk in obedience, we will love our enemies. That will be a quest of our life. <clears throat> All right, here's where it gets uncomfortable. Who 
do you rail against? Who makes you uncomfortable? Who resists your way? Who hurts you in this world? Who disgusts you? Who would, if you were really honest with yourself, you would rather kill than be with? There should be real faces rising up before us. Because Jesus doesn't speak here in theory, love enemies. He says, love your enemies. Your enemies aren't my enemies. We might share a few together. I don't know. I've never so compared notes. But your enemies are your enemies. Love them, says Jesus. Love them. Following Jesus means relating to that person, your enemies, in a distinctly Christ-like manner. Well, in the pattern of Matthew 5 to this place, what had they heard? We see this again. Verse 43 of Matthew 5. What had they heard? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Does the Old Testament teach that we should love our neighbor? It certainly does. This is a quotation of Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Love your neighbor. Well, what about this phrase, hate your enemy? Where do we find that command in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's right, we don't. That's what they have been taught, that's what they've been hearing, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But hating one's enemy was a common teaching in Israel at this time, and it was based on a peer something along these lines of reason. God commands that we love our neighbors. We listen to the word of our God. If God wanted us to love our enemies, He would have said that. But He does not. Since He did not, we rightly infer that we should love only our neighbor, and therefore we should hate our enemies. And this makes good sense, and here's where the theology comes in, the support from Scripture. This makes good sense because, says Israel, our enemies are God's enemies. How does God treat His enemies? We can turn to imprecatory psalms. God, destroy your enemies. Bring vengeance against them. They dishonor your glory. They dishonor your name. Judge them. We could point to the conquest. God disgusted thoroughly horrified by the sin of the Canaanites, brings his people in to exercise judgment against his enemies, who he hates, right? This was the reasoning. So we're just being like God. Love your neighbor, and the rabbis would debate who that applied to. What's a neighbor? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what you've heard, Jesus says. In many cases, they were right to conclude that their enemies were God's enemies and the objects of His anger. But what these teachers lacked was a robust understanding of how God relates to His enemies. And they lacked an understanding of who qualifies as a neighbor. 
This is what they had heard. Hate your enemies. What is the interpretation that actually fulfills the law? Jesus continues, and here he teaches. Verse 44. But I say to you, in contrast to those teaching you to hate your enemies, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We'll sit on this for a while, and let's reflect on it carefully. I don't really want to be here. This isn't the ticket we purchase because we want to be entertained. We're hearing here the counsel of Jesus that's hard to take in, but let's sit on it. Let's force our minds to it. Love your enemies. This is, of course, a unique kind of love. It's not sentimental love. It's certainly not romantic love. It's not being best friends with them. It's not being kindred spirits with them. They're enemies, after all. God is not asking us to be something we cannot possibly be. It's not seeing eye to eye. Not walking in agreement, necessarily. But it seems that it is a purposeful, persistent love that pursues at least three objectives. I just offer by way of suggestion and application. First, to love an enemy, I will seek to spend time in this person's presence. That's how I love an enemy. I get with them. Now we're talking on personal grounds. This is not nation-to-nation conversation here. I don't believe at all. There will be implications, certainly to nations if they would follow this directive, but that's not the purpose here. In context, he's speaking about your relationship with an enemy, get with them, spend time with them. Murder seeks to eliminate the very possibility that we will spend time together. Murder is a hater, a, a hatred, at least in some situations. Murder is a hatred that says, I never want to see you again. There can be attack on our enemies. That is to make the enemy uncomfortable seeking your presence. You want them to run away, and so you intimidate them. Or there might be simply avoidance. I'm just never going to go there, never going to cross this person's path, talk to them. I want nothing to do with this individual. They're my enemy. To love my enemy is to speak to spend time in their presence. Is to seek to spend time in their presence. It is secondly to act sacrificially in this person's best interest. Now obviously if my enemy is the jailkeeper where I am in prison for Christ, I won't need to seek their presence. The jailkeeper will come into my presence. It's going to be very challenging, the second idea, to act sacrificially in this person's best interest, but there I can go to work even if I'm imprisoned for Christ. But that's not what we in our culture and our setting today are dealing with. We're dealing with a very different relationship. We're going to seek to get in this person's presence. We're not going to allow the, us, our own heart to avoid them, but we're also going to seek their good. We're going to act in their best interest. And that merges into the third point, and that is that I will also labor for this person's reconciliation to God. Get with them, 
seek their best interest, and seek to reconcile them to God. I serve as God's agent to this enemy to bring them ultimately to the Lord. Love. Go toward the enemy. Work for this person's good. Seek that person's reconciliation with God. Love your enemy. Your enemy. It's easier to love someone else's enemy. Sometimes, in a sick way, we actually enjoy it. Watch me get along with this person you can't get along with. A little bit of a challenge. It's kind of fun. But he's your enemy, not mine. Jesus says, love your enemy. He calls us to love that small grouping of people who are to us the least lovely people on the planet. Love them. Love your enemies. It certainly includes those who persecute us, as the context bears out here. It certainly includes chapter 5 and verse 11, the people who revile you and persecute you and make false charges against you for Christ's sake. But in this context, and I think in the teaching of Jesus that will be borne out in the book of Matthew in his teaching in the Gospels, is an enemy is anyone who is not a neighbor, and a neighbor is someone who is like me and likes me. A neighbor is someone who's like me and likes me, and an enemy is somebody who's not that person who's outside of that circle. A neighbor is someone who is supposed to be in my world and contributes to my peace of mind and my agenda. We may not always get along, but we live together and we're glad we live together on some level. Contextually, I think that's the idea of what a neighbor is. So an enemy is someone who opposes me, who stands in my way, Someone I just don't want to be around because they are intimidating, irritating, or disinteresting. I just don't care. In Jesus' way of teaching, that could qualify as an enemy. It's not necessarily someone with a sword that's looking to pierce you through. It's someone you just don't want to be around for whatever reason. We are to choose to love that person out of love for Christ. Love your enemies. Did I, I find this next phrase in verse 44 strange. It, it, it's, it's strange in that it's, it's counterintuitive, but it, it's just strange that we wouldn't think of this. But he says these amazingly challenging words, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. I think it's a parallel phrase to the preceding, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He's saying the same thing two ways, but he says it with a a little bit different nuance here. Persecution may come from someone hostile to our Christian faith, but it can also come from a parent, from a child, someone who should be a friend and is not. Pray for them. Pray. Now many have observed that it's almost impossible to hate the people for whom you pray. And I've even heard this counsel, this instruction, pray for your enemy 
And God will use that so that you don't despise them the way that you have. There there may be some truth to that, but Jesus is not talking here. He's not sharing this secret in our ear. Let me give you this little tip. This path to psychological peace of mind. If you'll stop hating them and pray for them, here's your tip, this will really help your heart. Don't think that's what he's saying. Might be the effect on some level. But Jesus is talking here of a gritty, soul-challenging quest to labor before the throne of God for the blessing of our enemies. To go before the throne of the universe, to appeal to the omnipotent King of heaven, and to beseech Him to intervene for the good of our enemies is real love. See, when we talk about the psychological effect of praying for enemies, we're thinking largely of ourselves. When we think about prayer as going before the God of the universe, thinking about Him, we realize what we're doing. I am bearing up the good, the blessing, the support of this enemy before the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm appealing to the power of the universe to help, aid, bless this person I'm naming in prayer. I plead, I beg God every day of my life in prayer for my family. I plead and I beg God in prayer every day for you, this church, because I love you. I've chosen to love you. I've chosen to love my family. By His grace, I'm thankful for a family and I'm thankful for this church family and I pray for you earnestly. And though it is hard, it is a joy. I'm thankful I know you and can pray for you. I'm thankful that I can love you and love my family through prayer. But I'd say before you that I am sorely lacking in this discipline of begging and pleading with God for my enemies. I'm talking to you as a man in need. Praying for God to bless your enemy is one of the hardest calls to love that we will ever heed. Picture your greatest enemy. If you say, I really don't have many, maybe you should, but at least picture the person that you least want to see next. Do you pray for that person? Do you plead with God for him or her? Why is this good? Why does Jesus say this hard thing to us? To pray for our enemies. 
Notice what verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And we've got to be careful with that phrase. It's a beautiful turn of phrase, but it can be misconstrued. It, the point is that we should love and pray for our enemies because to do so is to emulate God. That you may be sons of your Father, I take the word be in the sense of become, but not pray for your enemies so that you can earn God's favor, so that you can become saved or something along those lines. We don't become God's children by loving our neighbors or loving our enemies. But I think the idea is this. Becoming sons of God is a Semitic way of saying you will become like God. You will take on His characteristics. Love your neighbors. Love your... I'm going to say enemies right once here. Love your enemy. I like saying love your neighbors better. It just comes more naturally, doesn't it? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies so that you emulate God. If you don't do this, you're not going to emulate God. Here's what he's saying, verse 45. So that you be, may be sons of, God, of the Father. Again, remembering this is in a Semitic, a Hebraic culture where a son was seen as having the same status as the Father. So we never, of course, become equal with God, but loving my neighbor is God-like. This, I think, is the right interpretation as the verse continues. It supports this interpretation, verse 45, 4. You see the word for. So that you may become sons of your Father. So that you will emulate God. For, here's God now, verse 45, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You'll be like God who does this. For gives the ground of the assertion, love your enemies and you'll be like God, for he showers good upon his enemies every day. How does God relate to people who reject him and live in direct violation of his will? Look out these windows. That's how he does it. Helps that this May 1st day is just gorgeous, of course. But even if it wasn't, what would it be like if it looked like this for two months? We'd all be pleading for rain, wouldn't we? He gives that, what you see now, and He gives the rain, and He pours it out in His grace. Upon whom? On His enemies' heads. That's your God. How does he relate to people who reject him and live in direct violation of his will? He mercifully sends them sun and rain. He lights their days. He prospers their crops that they may eat and drink and enjoy the bounties of creation. That's your Father. Does God judge the wicked? Yes, He does. God angry with the wicked? Every day. But how does he treat his enemies? One way that he treats them characteristically is to pour out his grace upon them. They despise him. They ignore him. They use his name in vain to look cute or to curse the universe. They oppose him at every turn. They harm his creatures. They persecute his followers. They break his laws. And he feeds them. 
He clothes them. He shelters them. He gives them the joy of music and family. He paints their days with the splendors of earth and sky. He gives them health. He continues to pour out His common grace day after day upon His enemies. God treats His enemies with what theologians have called common grace. It is distinguished from elective, saving grace. But believe me, common grace is real grace. Common grace is not only picked up by the lost world, it is directed right at them by a God who loves His enemies. Some theologians so anxious to preserve God's sovereignty and salvation have argued that God loves the elect, but He hates the non-elect. God does not love the lost. Some theologians argue this point. There's a number of answers to them, but I think this passage is all you really need. This passage is all the proof we need to dispel the thinking that God does not love the lost. Does God command us to love our enemies while never loving His? What does this verse say? He makes His sun rise on the evil and His rain to fall mercifully on the unjust. So love your neighbor, love your enemy, that you may be like God. In verse 46 and following, he brings out the way in which this distinguishes the believer. I mean, we have to be fairly dead to not figure that out thus far. Do a search on love your neighbor and you'll see what pops up. The world's not tripping over itself to preach this message. It will distinguish us. But notice how he brings this out in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The tax collectors, these despised oppressors of society, raising taxes from their own people in behalf of the occupying armies of Rome and keeping a good bit of it in their own pockets. These despised people, even they, will love those who love them. Go to a tax collector's party. I mean, this is a tight group because everybody hates them, pretty much. But they get along with each other. They have some great parties. They love one another. How are you any better than them? How are you any better than them if that's all that you love? What reward, he says, do you have? Not how will you earn your salvation, but what profit, what distinction, what identification with God will you gain by loving your friends and your neighbors? There's nothing particularly godlike in that. Tax collectors do the same. The Adamic nature loves to gaze on its own reflection in others. The Adamic nature loves to gaze at its own reflection in others. 
So the lost find little trouble with loving their own reflection in their friends. If you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Notice that phrase, more than. What, what are you doing more than? You greet, not a casual passing hello in this culture, but in that culture, greetings were a virtual ritual. It displayed loving regard and acceptance. You do not need God in order to treat your friends and relatives like that. Prejudicial love for those who are like us and like us is not the least bit distinctive. It takes no divine aid. But what he is saying is take that greeting, that warm greeting that says, we're brothers, we're sisters, I like you, I'm glad you're here. Take that greeting and greet your enemy like that. You don't ignore a friend. You don't gossip about a friend. You enter their presence. You greet them with respect. Do that to your enemy. Indeed, closing this chapter, but certainly verses 43 and following, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we read the word perfect and we might think of sinless perfection and some have indeed thought of that and argue that's what Jesus is saying. But the Greek word speaks not of sinless perfection as much of, as of maturity, completion, being above reproach. The, words, the world specializes, as Stott puts it in a great phrase, they specialize in avenging injuries and returning favors. That's the world you live in. Avenging injuries and returning favors. That's how people live. But God's children, in this context, bless not only their friends, they also bless their enemies. They choose the mature path of the peacemaker. In that sense, they are perfect as their Father is perfect. They are mature and complete in Him. They choose the mature path. They choose to suffer wrong, verses 39 to 42. They endure hardship. They love their enemies. They pray for them. They seek to overcome evil with good, Romans 12. That is, they are maturely merciful. Maturely merciful. And in that sense, they are like God. And that is very good. Pastor Kent Hughes recounts a story from the life of C.S. Lewis who was criticized in a journal article published in the Christian Century magazine. Christian Century magazine would have loved to criticize Lewis a lot, I can imagine. But the, the article charged Lewis with this. He does not seem to care much for the Sermon on the Mount, which is code in liberal theology 
for those who erroneously derive from the Sermon on the Mount all of their liberal doctrines in rejection of the rest of the Bible. He doesn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. Lewis' response is classic. He said this, his words, If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage, this sermon, with tranquil pleasure. Isn't that great? Are you with him? Do you feel like you've just been smashed to the ground with a sledgehammer? I can tell you honestly, as I prepared this sermon, my flesh found no pleasure in the sledgehammer words of Christ. No pleasure in a fleshly sense. I do not like these words. I don't want to love my enemies. I don't find it natural to seek their presence, labor for their good, or pray that they would be reconciled to God. Do you? Who is it for you? It might be an unfair boss. Exasperating, frustrating, sinful boss. Or that workmate that makes your life miserable. It might be the person driving the car next to you who does something you think is stupid. For that moment, your enemy. It might be the salesperson who mishandles your order. At that moment, your enemy. It might be the neighbor who makes life so difficult, who does not want to relate to you fairly or honorably, but continues to relate to you in a way that is harmful and irritating. For some of you, it might be that your greatest enemy is your husband. Your greatest enemy in this world, the one that stands opposed to you more than any other, is your wife. Perhaps the most challenging relationship that you have of opposition and difficulty and challenge is with your parents or with a son or a daughter. It's an enemy-like relationship. Shouldn't be. You don't want it to be that way. You're doing everything that you think in some sense to do the right thing that it won't be that way. But loving that person, praying for them, doing good And it could be formally, as is indicated here, someone who persecutes your faith. They ridicule your faith. They don't like you because you follow Christ. Christ's call in all of these relationships is this. This is his counsel. His counsel is not putting his arm around us and saying, I really hope this goes away soon. 
I really hope this person changes. His counsel as he puts his arm around us is, you need to change. You need to love that person. Enter into their world for good, pleading before my throne that there would be a day of reconciliation. That's Christ's counsel to us. Now, none of this is natural to us. But by the grace of God, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you even want this? Do I want this? Do we plead now in our souls with God, produce a love for enemies within my heart? I'm not going to find this natural. I'm not going to find this easy. But I want it. I, I hunger for it. Hunger for it because I want to emulate my Father who loved His enemies. Who loves them every day. We will long to emulate Jesus who practiced such love throughout His earthly ministry. And how could we miss this really? Knowing the example of Christ, we, we can't miss this. It's so clear. Think of the night in which Jesus is betrayed. He goes to this last supper with His disciples and while Judas is preparing to betray him, to turn him over ultimately for execution, and Jesus knows this, he invites Judas to the meal. It's not the script that I would write. He let Judas leave later. Why not just tell him to leave right away? He brings him to the meal. His ultimate enemy on earth right then is in the room. And Jesus strips to his waist and gets down on his knees and takes Judas's feet and washes them clean of the dirt of the muddy roads. Holding his feet, holding the feet of his enemy and doing good. He then speaks a final word of warning to Judas. Gracious, but direct, confronting, and yet giving him room for repentance and reconciliation to God. And then he lets Judas exit the room to go off into the darkness to work his plot. He did not win Judas over, but he loved his enemy perfectly. And ultimately, of course, that love for enemies is displayed as Christ gives His life on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, He prays, and the Greek tense would indicate that He continues to pray over and over as He is facing persecution from the soldiers. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. For His enemies, He prays on the cross. And what we must not miss is one of those enemies was you. One of those enemies was me. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. By this death, He dies in the place for His enemies praying for us and doing the ultimate good for us to bear our sins that we might have life in His name. 
You say, I'm not an enemy of God. That's not me. Well, it is. Because we live in direct disobedience to God's law. God, our Maker, has every right to communicate His counsel and His law to us. And He does so just like He sends the sun and the rain. He does so for our good when He says, do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not gossip, do not commit adultery, do not have an unthankful, unloving, unfaithful spirit. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gives us His law out of His love for us, and we say, no, thanks. I'll do it my way. And we go off into our own way. We resist God's will. For those who resist God's will, for those who say, I'm going to be my own God and serve my own purposes, Christ lays down his life. He dies for his enemies. Jesus died to secure the redemption of all who place their trust in his work. And so dying for his enemies, he holds out hope and life for we who are his enemies. And calls you if you've not been reconciled to Christ, if you've not come to trust His death and resurrection for your salvation, if you have not come poor in spirit, needy of Christ, and seeing His glories, He says to you, repent, turn from your sin, and believe. Trust me, I died for my enemies. For those of us who have said and come to a place in our life where we say, I know I was his enemy. I could prosecute myself to a conviction. But I've come to trust the reconciling work of Christ. I've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. For those of us who can say that, remember, He reconciled you when you were His enemy. Never let that thought leave you. He did not reconcile you when He got you cleaned up enough to say, okay, now this person merits my forgiveness. He reconciled us. He brought us to salvation while we were his enemies. So, the call to us today is to emulate him. Follow him. Do what he did. Love your enemies and pray for them. And let's pray that we would. Lord, we turn to you now in dependent trust recognizing how challenging this call is to us and yet thrilling in our soul to know Christ has spoken. This is good. We know it's good. We just find ourselves to be so insufficient. And so we come to you in desperate need, praying poor in spirit that you would supply the grace and the strength to love our enemies as you loved us. 
I pray that we'd live out this gospel response every day of our lives, that we would be driven by the realization that Jesus died for me when I was his enemy. He gave his life for me. May that reminder and that realization drive us to relate to our enemies in a radically distinct way in this warring world. We need your aid. There may well be some among us here today who are yet unreconciled, who remain your enemy whether they know it or not, and who need to humbly bow in repentant faith. I pray that you do that work and show them the wonder of being loved. Show them the wonder of being forgiven and knowing that we are no longer enemies but now sons and daughters, children of God through Jesus. Bring about that life today, we ask. In the name of our Savior, amen.